1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Um, I have been with you guys for nine Sundays. December 4th. <laughs> yeah, right. Not even double digits yet. Uh, nine Sundays uh, we have made it. And already um, we have come to, this morning, uh, one of the most controversial and socially offensive passages of the entire New Testament. Yay me. It's been nice knowing you guys. It's been a good run. No, we're going we're gonna to make it. We're going to survive. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15 is where we are this morning. Um, you may leave here this morning uh, with more questions than answers. Um, I don't have enough time, uh, and um, so I want to encourage you uh, to, uh, related to a couple of resources. One is one that I read over the last week or so, and uh, another one of our members uh, that I've been dialoguing with on these things uh, from the church here, Yvonne Emlet, she read this book as well. Both of us found it really helpful. Uh, the name of it is uh, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles by an, an author named Kathy Keller, uh, for whom uh, this issue is a really personal one, uh, but she's also really well-read, really well-educated, and she addresses it uh, expertly. So Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles, Kathy Keller, really short, but really concise, substantive, addresses more questions than I will be able to this morning. Only seven or eight bucks or so online. Um, another resource that I wanted to point you to is a link video that myself and Rave Wilson uh, created with Pastor Chris. Rave's a, a member here. You guys know her. Uh, we created a link video with Pastor Chris on this topic as well, uh, 25 minutes or so, kind of addressing this topic more broadly as opposed to a specific text like I'm going to do this morning. But if you go on YouTube and search Woodside Bible Men, Women, uh, I think it'll be the first video to pop up for you. So go on YouTube, search Woodside Bible, men, women, and you'll see the, the video that, that Rave and I created uh, discussing this issue with Pastor Chris. Because I, again, and you may leave here with more questions than answers, and I'm not going to have time to address everything. We're not even going to touch verse 15 this morning. I don't have enough time to get all, to all the verses I've been assigned. Um, but let's get going. So... It's really important to understand that as the Apostle Paul, he's addressing the Ephesian church kind of through Timothy. Timothy is his missionary partner. Timothy is his apostolic delegate, but he's really addressing the church in the city of Ephesus. And he's addressing them in the light of corporate worship. That's really the context into which he's going to share these apostolic commands the church in corporate worship. So you remember we looked at a, a few weeks ago, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where he addresses the church as the church of the living God, the assembly of the living God, the household of God, he calls us. So he's talking to the church. And then in his text this morning, he's going to talk about prayer. He's going to talk about teaching, things that are done in the context of the church gathered for worship. It's really understand that 
That is the context into which he's sharing these commands. It's important that we understand this context of worship because, especially in verses 11 through 12, the restrictions the apostle makes here for women are primarily primarily related to the context of worship. And even then, a specific kind of authoritative teaching that happens within the context of public worship, namely what I'm doing right now. So I don't know if you guys have thought about this, but what I'm doing right now is a remarkably authoritative act. And what you guys are doing right now is a remarkably submissive act. So I am standing in front of all of you guys, elevated on this stage, with my voice amplified, so that all of you can see me, all of you can hear me, declaring the truth of God. And all of you guys are positioned facing me, sitting mostly silently for 30 to 40 minutes. It's an impressive display of authority and submission. This is what Paul is going to say is restricted to only qualified men, namely the pastor elders. He is not saying women can never utter a sound in public worship. In other parts of his writings, he assumes that women are praying and prophesying in public worship, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Rather, it's this type of authoritative preaching teaching in worship he's restricting to only qualified men, specifically the pastor elders of the church. And I make this qualification up front because many have twisted these verses in ways that have almost completely marginalized the role of women in the church. And some have even twisted these verses in order to justify abuse against women in the church, and that is sinful and wrong. So again, I'm making this qualification up front because Paul's words, I think, can sound more restrictive and harsh than they actually are. And many of our sisters are understandably sensitive to this because the way they have been treated harshly themselves, sometimes because these very words have been twisted against them. Um, Some who have already reached out to me leading up to this Sunday because they knew this text was coming and out of concern had questions and graciously shared their concern with me so that we could dialogue and start to understand each other. So I do want to make myself available to do that. My email address is ctldridge at woodsidebible.org. If you have questions that come up, I'd love to dialogue with you further. Again, some ladies have already begun to do so because I'm not going to be able to get to everything. But I want to try to bring as much clarity as I can on this text and also on where Woodside stands related to some of these issues. So again, that's the primary context into which these verses fall. The church gathered for corporate worship, for prayer, for teaching, and the rest. So let me read these words for us, and then we'll dive in. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. 
not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What disrupts worship for you? In the context of Sunday morning corporate worship, what are some of the things that distract your attention, that upset your spirit, and just disrupt your overall experience? You know, you made all this effort to come to church. You went to bed early on Saturday night. You woke up early on Sunday, Sunday morning. If you had kids, you wrangled them out of bed. You herded them to the breakfast table. You squeezed some clothes on them. You traveled through the snow and cold weather. And then sometimes there are these different situations and different people that can be distracting or disruptive. So for example, you're trying to engage in the songs with passion, but there's a spelling error in one of the lyric slides. Like I can't take seriously the verse of a song when the lyric slide spells Jesus, J-E-S-Y-S. It's funny and distracting. Or you're trying to stay focused during the sermon and listen intently, but there's a dad sitting in front of you holding his baby with the baby's face turned towards you like this, and the baby's too cute not to look at. So you're not hearing anything I'm saying, and I don't judge you. I'd be doing the same. Everybody thinks it's the crying babies who are an issue. It's the cute babies. <laughs> or this is the distraction complaint that I most often receive. CT, you sing loudly. You sing, you sing passionately and also terribly out of tune. <laughs> and the people who sit next to me have graciously let me know. But there are any number of things that we could list that disrupt worship, that, it, that distract us from engaging as fully as we'd wish. What disrupts worship for you? Well, that's the question that is on the apostle's mind as he's addressing us in these verses today. The few worship disruptions that I mentioned are humorous and silly, but the ones the apostle addresses here are much more consequential. As he said in chapter 3, verse 15, we are the church of the living God. We are the household of God. And when we gather, for, it is for his glory. When we gather, it is in his son's name. When we gather, it is his spirit at work amongst us. And so we want to do this in a way that honors him as much as possible. But Paul is going to identify three things that keep us from that. Three things that disrupt worship. First, disputing brothers. Secondly, distracting dress. And thirdly, disordered worship. So first, disputing brothers. Look once more at verse 8. Paul begins this section by continuing to discuss prayer. Again, verse 8, he says, I desire in every place that men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. 
So you remember from last week, verses one through seven, Paul focused on who is to be prayed for, namely all people, for kings and all who are in authority and everybody underneath them. That's who we are to pray for. No one's excluded. Then in verse eight, he focuses on how those prayers are to be made, namely by lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling amongst us. So he first speaks to the physical posture of lifting our hands in prayer. And this apparently was a common way for prayers to be offered in the context of public worship. So Psalm 28, verse two, the psalmist speaks of lifting his hands toward the holy sanctuary as he prays. In Psalm 134, verse two, the psalmist calls on God's people to worship, lifting their hands to the holy place, blessing the Lord as they do so. So this is kind of the opposite posture that we most commonly link with prayer, which would be hands folded. There's even that prayer emoji that pops up if you type thanks or prayer while you're texting somebody, the hands folded like this. That's kind of the default prayer posture in our culture to pray with hands folded and of course with our eyes closed. But so far as I can tell, Nowhere in the Bible are we told to pray with our hands folded or our eyes closed. This is so automatic for us. You would think it's like the most biblical thing, but not once. Furthermore, there are no examples of anyone in scripture being described as praying with hands folded or with eyes closed. So we're not commanded to pray with our eyes eyes closed and hands folded, nor is there an example of that in scripture, but it's what we default to. I don't know where this came from. It's not necessarily unbiblical to pray like that, but it is not biblical either. One of my former pastors had several children and he explained to me the practical importance of his family praying with their hands folded because it helped his young children not mess with one another during prayer or to start to eat their food too soon. It's kind of a self-control mechanism. So I have adopted this at my house with our kids, especially before meals to get their attention and to get them to stop eating before they should. Before uh, I offer prayer, I will, I will very dramatically fold my hands to help get their attention and help them to do the same before we thank the Lord. So perhaps for some practical reasons, uh, hand folding and eye closing are utilized. But again, the apostle calls for just the opposite. He calls for hand lifting. And think about this. What's the significance of lifting one's hands? Well, I can only guess two things. One perhaps is that it's a way to express surrender to God. It's a way to express trust in him. You know, this is a very vulnerable position. <laughs> This is a very exposing posture to be in. That's why the police, whenever they're arresting someone, they'll tell them, put your hands up because they know that with their hands in the air, that presumed criminal can't do anything to them. So when we come before God in prayer with our hands lifted, we're saying, Lord, I surrender to you. I'm exposed. I'm vulnerable before you and happily so because I trust you, God. So that may be one of the reasons we pray with lifted hands. The other that comes to mind is because by lifting our hands towards something, we bless that something. 
we celebrate that something. So example, when our favorite team scores a touchdown or hits a home run, we lift our hands with excitement. We lift our hands with joy to bless our team, to celebrate them. But whether it's because of surrender or celebration, Paul calls for prayers to be offered with lifted hands. And not only with lifted hands, perhaps more especially with holy hands. So holy refers to something that is set apart, something that is sanctified from normal use. In this case, holy hands refers to hands that are set apart for God, not contaminated by sin. Hands that are not stained with immorality. Paul is saying that you can lift your hands in prayer, you can fold your hands in prayer all day, but if your hands are stained with sin, if your life is marked by injustice, then your prayers are meaningless. So he calls on them to pray with lifted, holy hands. And then he gives another qualifier, without anger or quarreling. So apparently the specific sin that the men in Ephesus needed to sanctify their hands from was angrily fighting with fellow worshipers, fellow believers. That's why I say Paul's first disruption in worship was disputing brothers. So apparently there were some men in the Ephesian church who perhaps were praying who perhaps were leading the congregation in prayer, but their hands were not holy. Specifically, they were made unholy by the sin of division from other brothers angrily fighting with them. And this worship disruption is a big deal. A spelling error on the lyric slide, not a huge issue. But two Christian brothers or a group of them angrily at odds with one another, yes, very big deal. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses this exact thing, anger and fighting and division in the context of worship. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 26, if any of you are offering your gift at the altar, so that lets us know the context here is worship, when someone is offering their gift at that time, what was the temple altar, if you are offering your gift in worship at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother, then come and offer your gift. So notice here, Jesus doesn't say, if you have an offense against someone, go search them out. No, he puts it on us. If someone has an offense against you, go search them out to be reconciled. That means we are to have a proactive examining our relationship. Who is there that we may have offended? Before we worship, before we offer our gift, before we come to pray, first be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. The principle here in Matthew 5 and in 1 Timothy 2 is that if we're not reconciled with our brother, then we cannot worship with our brother. First, be reconciled, Jesus says. Pray with lifted, holy hands, not quarreling, the apostle says. Because you see, gathering for worship as we are now, it is a reminder that we are one body and each of us members of that body But if different parts of the body are at odds, we are not one body. 
or at least we are not one healthy body. So we must ask ourselves, especially members of Woodside Royal Oak, I've got to ask you, is there anyone in this church towards whom your predominant emotion is anger or frustration? Is there anyone in this church, when you think about them, when you look about them, your predominant emotion is anger, frustration, resentment, bitterness? If so, this is serious business. Jesus takes it very serious. Paul warns us, it disrupts worship. And as pastors, this is a common part of what we do. Mediating peacemaking between conflicting groups within our church. So reach out, let us help. Or get connected to a life group where you can find trusted friends to share those negative emotions with and how to process how to move forward with the broken relationships in your life and in the church. But this is a big deal and it disrupts the worship of God. So three things that disrupt worship. First, disputing brothers. Secondly, distracting dress. Distracting dress. So continuing on in verses nine and 10, the apostle shifts from addressing men specifically to identifying ladies in the church. And he writes, likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but adorn yourselves with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So that likewise also there at the start of verse nine, it indicates that Paul is likewise also sharing his concerns about disruptions in corporate worship context. It doesn't mean that what he says doesn't have broader application outside of the gathered church, but at least his immediate focus is the way that some ladies apparently distractingly dressed for church. Now, why was this clothing distracting? Well, for sure, part of the reason it was distracting was because it was so expensive. So when Paul lists those few specific things that women aren't to wear, braided hair, gold, pearls, costly attire. And that seems to be the real issue. The cost of these items was excessive. Of course, I am not an expert in ancient Ephesian fashion, but the scholars I've read assure me that these items in that culture were excessively expensive. So it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with braided hair or girl uh, with braided hair or gold or pearls. It's not that there's anything inherently wrong with those things, but if attaining those things is excessively foolishly high cost, then it can be inappropriate and distracting. So as an illustration, you know how it is when you're driving and perhaps you pull up to a red light and then an extremely awesome, flashy sports car pulls up next to you. A Lambo, a Ferrari, a Corvette, whatever. I mean, everybody's head turns. Everybody has to look. It's distracting in that way. Like right now, my boys are like that with Teslas. Like every time we drive by one, their face is in the window. Dad, look, a Tesla. That's just what is distractingly cool for them right now. Paul's concern isn't so much with what is distractingly cool, but with what is distractingly expensive clothing, clothing that is a status symbol, clothing that signifies I am rich. 
I am elite. I am above others. Now, strangely, in, in some church context, Paul's call for modesty in dress has been interpreted as a call to ugliness in dress. <laughs> Very strangely to me. In some church context, these verses have been interpreted to be as completely bland as possible. Like, well, the apostle says to dress modestly, so we should suppress every ounce of creativity and color and design in our clothing. And I'm thinking like, why does your mind go there? Why does it have to be taken to such extreme? Because to be modest doesn't mean to be ugly. To be modest doesn't mean to be completely dull. In fact, William Hendrickson, he's a, a New Testament scholar who is very conservative. In fact, he interprets other parts of this very passage more conservatively than I do. But here in verse 9, when he translates that first phrase, likewise, also women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, he argues that a good interpretive or, or a good translation option is tasteful apparel. In other words, he, he says, Paul is calling for women, dress tastefully, dress attractively, respectively. So these verses are not a call to urge, uh, to suppress every urge to appear beautiful. And if you read the Song, of, the Song of Solomon, if you read Psalm 45, these are parts of the Bible that celebrate physical beauty, including the clothes that we wear. So not, Paul is not calling for bland taste in clothing. I think he's calling, especially women, to have good, respectable, tasteful clothing. Of course, with the caveat that there is an excessive cost involved. It could be unwise and distracting. But another part of his instruction here that is perhaps more important is that regardless of whatever a woman wears in her clothes, what they should certainly adorn themselves with is godly character. He says, adorn yourselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control. Adorn yourselves with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So Paul says, that's what we should be known for. The, the fruit of the spirit that is self-control, the fruit of the spirit that is goodness. That's what we should all adorn ourselves with. And if we do so, we won't distract others in worship. So church, in light of God's word, we must ask ourselves, sisters and brothers, are you focusing more on cultivating a life of virtue and godliness, putting on love and good deeds? Or are you focusing more and spending more on your physical appearance, whether your clothing or your body itself? I think those questions are a good test for whether or not we're heeding this call to modesty. Is your heart more consumed with God and his glory and his people or with what people think about you because of the way you appear, because of the way you dress? And if we fall into this latter category, we could move into a space where we start to distractingly dress and disrupt the worship of God. So disputing brothers, distracting dress, and finally, disordered leadership. Disordered leadership. So this final section starts in verse 11. 
Paul is going to address leadership and authority in the church, a topic that's going to continue into next week in chapter three. But he says in verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now this first verse is a universal principle. It's applicable to anyone. In other words, no one can learn apart from being quiet, man or woman. No one can learn apart from submitting yourself to whoever is teaching you. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 17, King Solomon says, the words of the wise are learned in quiet, meaning you have to silence yourself in order to learn from someone else. Similarly, in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 8, Solomon says, the wise of heart receive commandments but the babbling fool will come to ruin. Why can't the babbling fool receive God's commandments? Because he's always babbling and he won't silence himself to learn. So that's a universal principle applicable to all people. As Paul says, learn quietly with all submissiveness. And then from this general principle, Paul makes a specific application to women in the church, specifically in worship. Again, verses 11 and 12, the general principle. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Specific application of that principle, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, back to the universal principle, she is to remain quiet. Now, what's going on here? Because again, as I mentioned at the start, we know that Paul is not calling for complete, utter, never make a noise silence from women. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, Paul's assumption is that both women, uh, is that women were praying and prophesying in the context of public worship. Both of those things, praying and prophesying, requiring a woman to speak. Similar to the way that we have women here lead in prayer or singing or sharing testimony. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul assumes that women are doing these things and he doesn't challenge them on it. So what is going on here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and the restriction related to teaching and exercising authority? Okay, so to help us understand this, it seems to me that a comparable situation was taking place in the churches that the apostle Peter wrote to in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. So look at these verses real quick with me. I think this is a comparable situation to what's happening in 1 Timothy 2. In 1 Peter 2, he says to the churches, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this, your submission to the ruling authorities, it is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So do you see what's happened here? Apparently, some of the believers that Peter was writing to were justifying their resistance to the ruling authorities because, hey, we're free in Christ. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We belong to the kingdom of God. We don't need to submit to some earthly emperor. The apostle says, well, yes and no. Yes, you are free in Christ, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Yes, you belong to God's kingdom, but you also belong to the Roman Empire. 
and are to submit to the emperor as such. Subject yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, Peter says. Best I can tell, there's a similar strain of thought that has impacted some of the Ephesian Christians, perhaps especially the ladies. Because through the good news of Jesus, these women learned the gospel truth that in Christ, there is neither male nor female. Galatians chapter three, verse 28. Men and women have equal access to the grace of God. And as the apostle Peter says to Christian husbands about their wives, he says they are co-heirs with you in the grace of God. They are equal recipients of God's mercy through Christ. That's a liberating truth for a lot of women. In Romans chapter three, Paul says, there is no distinction. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. There's no distinction between man and woman. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all are freely justified by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is a liberating, dignifying, elevating truth, especially for women who are in cultures that denigrate and marginalize them just for being women, which is sadly a lot of cultures throughout history and even today. So when these women hear the liberating power of the gospel, understanding that they are equally loved and valued and gifted by God, called to serve him just as any man, it is freeing for them. At the same time, similarly to the way our freedom in Christ doesn't mean the order and structure of government are thrown out, so also our freedom in Christ doesn't mean the order and structure of the family and church are thrown out. Yes, there is neither male nor female in Christ Jesus, but this doesn't mean there stops being a distinction between a man and a woman and how God has ordered our relationships. But this seems to have been the line of thought taking hold in Ephesus, that because through Christ, men and women are equally accepted, there is now therefore no distinction in how God orders our leadership in the home or the church. And so apparently there were then women preaching in the context of worship and maybe some of them who had been made pastor elders. But the pattern of leadership that God instituted at creation in the family and was carried forward by Jesus himself in the church is what can be referred to as male headship. So related to creation and the family, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter five, that the husband is the head of the wife, meaning that a husband bears ultimate authority and leadership for his family. It doesn't mean that a wife doesn't have authority, responsibility, or leadership in the home, but it does mean that a husband bears ultimate and primary responsibility and leadership. Well, Jesus and then Paul extends this familial principle of male headship into the church. Jesus establishes his church upon the 12, really 13 apostles, all of whom are male. So during his life, Jesus was not afraid to challenge chauvinistic, misogynistic ideas or cultural practices when it came to how men and women related. Jesus offended his own disciples by how closely he related with women. See John chapter four and his conversation with the woman at the well. 
Jesus was not afraid to challenge his culture's chauvinism or misogyny. He discipled women, he ministered to women, he empowered women. But when it came to the authorized formal heads of the church, the 12, 13 apostles were all men. He holds to this principle of male headship and qualified men bearing ultimate responsibility and leadership for the church. Yes, women are free in Christ. Yes, you are called by him. Yes, you are dignified by him. And Paul partnered with women and elevated women in ministry as much as Jesus did. But that doesn't mean that God's created order is eliminated. Rather, male headship is a principle that still applies specifically in the home and in the church. But this teaching appears to have been lost for some of the Christians in Ephesus. And Paul has to say here, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And then he grounds his command in the created order. Verse 14, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So the idea seems to be here, the same way Adam led Eve... And being created first, he also acts as the primary ultimate leader of their family. But for women to teach in the way that Paul is restricting them to in verse 12, it denies that created order. In fact, it reverses it just like what happened in the garden when the first couple originally sinned, which is exactly where he goes in the very next verse, verse 14. I do not permit a woman to teach with authority for Adam was formed first, then Eve, for Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived becoming a transgressor. So the idea here is not that Eve is somehow morally inferior to Adam. The idea here is not that somehow women are spiritually inferior to men. That is not true. The idea here rather is that Eve being deceived led them into sin. Adam didn't get deceived. Adam didn't do anything. He just passively sat by watching his wife being deceived by Satan. And then he followed her, reversing the order God had created them for. So I think this is succinct and faithful. Adam created first to lead Eve. Eve sinned first, leading Adam. Sin reversed the created order of male headship. And Paul's conclusion is so also when women teach, with authority in the context of the gathered church for worship. It reverses the created order of male headship. Again, this does not mean that women can never ever speak in worship. Paul assumes in other parts of his writings that they did so, nor does it mean that women can't teach God's word and offer leadership. We have many faithful female teachers and leaders at this church But in the context of corporate worship, when it comes to the most authoritative moment of instruction from God's word, it is to be carried out by pastor elders, qualified men. Now, let's be honest. To assert male headship, to restrict any role to only qualified men, cuts hard against the grain of contemporary thinking. For many modern people in the West, that truth does not land easily for them. And I will admit that I am one of them. 
Growing up, I went to a church that had women pastors, several different ones that came through over time. And I can still remember, for some reason, the exact moment my senior year of high school when I first learned that some women don't allow women, uh, some churches don't allow women pastors. And it offended me, offended me so much that I can still remember exactly where I was in English class. And I thought to myself, what jerks? Of course, I, even though I went to church, I hadn't really read the Bible and started to wrestle with these different texts of scripture, but it just cut so hard against the grain of the way my mind thought about these things. If men and women are equal, then there shouldn't be any difference in what a man can do and what a woman can do. That was just my built-in presupposition default way of thinking as a contemporary young person in the year 2003, senior year in high school. If men and women are truly equal in value, then there can't be any restrictions in what a woman is allowed to do. There can't be any difference, no difference. Same, same, same. So why has God done this? Why is male headship the principle for leadership and the home and the church? Well, the best reason I can give you is that God seems to have a peculiar delight in unity amongst diversity, sameness amongst differentness. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three persons, and yet they are one God. A husband and wife are two people, and yet they are one flesh. And there are many members in the church with different gifts, different ethnicities, and sometimes different roles, but we are one body. God delights in unity amongst diversity, and it's as we embrace our gender, as we embrace our different callings, we put on display for a watching world this powerful witness of a people united in Jesus, though different we all may be. And our corporate worship is a concentrated experience of this unity and diversity dynamic. It doesn't matter if a lyric slide has a typo. Doesn't matter if the projector's flickering on and off. <laughs> it's not a big deal. <laughs> Josh is working on it, promise. It doesn't matter if bulletins are printed incorrectly. It doesn't matter if the person sitting beside you is singing off key. It doesn't matter. So I say. But it does matter if our worship is disrupt disrupted. It does matter if our worship is disrupted by brothers who are angry at one another. It does matter if our worship is disrupted by brothers who are divided. It does matter if our worship is disrupted by distracting clothing. And it does matter if we ignore the leadership structure that God built into creation for the family and the church. So for this last song that Josh and I chose, it's one that I often categorize as a song of surrender. In other words, it's a song that leads us to surrender ourselves before God. Maybe for you, it's surrendering anger and bitterness 
that you have towards someone. Maybe it's surrendering a desire to find significance and acceptance through the way you appear. Maybe it's surrendering to God and trusting in the way he's designed both leadership for the church and our homes.
But let's stand together, brothers and sisters, as we prepare to respond to God's word. And I will pray for us.